is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. Today, we'll be discussing one of the most influential and iconic comic book superhero titles of all time, the Uncanny X-Men. Cyclops, Storm, Banshee, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Children of the Atom, Students of Charles Xavier, Mutants, feared and hated by the world they have sworn to protect. These are the strangest heroes of all, the Uncanny X-Men. So reads the preamble to more than a few issues of Marvel Comics' Uncanny X-Men, a flagship title originally about a team of teenage superheroes who were born with their powers, rather than obtaining them by training, accident, or strange circumstance. Although the roster would grow in shape over time to include far more than those first named, including Rogue, Kitty Pride, Psylocke, Dazzler, Longshot, and more. The X-Men launched in 1963, but had a hard time finding its audience, and also ran among more successful books such as Spider-Man, The Fantastic Four, and The Avengers. At its lowest ebb, it lived largely on reprints and under the shadow of cancellation. But that all changed almost a half century ago, when the book was relaunched with a new lineup of characters and a new writer, Chris Claremont. Claremont's legendary run on the X-Men became the longest ever tenure of any Marvel writer on a single title. Working with artists such as Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, Paul Smith, John Romita Jr., and others, including longtime inker Bob Wyacek, colorist Glynis Oliver, and letterer Tom Orzakowski, Claremont not only redefined the X-Men into some of the most popular superheroes of all time, but he also helped to transform comics, both artistically and commercially. One cannot talk about superhero comics without talking about the X-Men, and one cannot talk about the X-Men without talking about Claremont's treatment of them. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. Chris Claremont and Company's Golden Age of the X-Men, specifically a stretch from August 1975 to April 1988, from Uncanny X-Men issues number 94 through number 228. This covers the story from the launch of the so-called New X-Men to their move in residence to Australia. At that point, the X-Men as a franchise had become Marvel's most popular property, spawning a multiplicity of new X titles an increased publishing frequency for Uncanny X-Men to twice monthly, and the long tail that would eventually end in Claremont's departure as a writer. I am always excited to talk about our topic of the day, but the X-Men, this one's special. Nothing, and I do mean nothing, has quite inspired me so directly over the years as my relationship with this comic book. It is the book that redefined what I thought about superheroes, what I thought about comic books, and most of all, what I thought about those who are judged not by their deeds, but by their heritage. With me today is Shire Emissary Chris Crenshaw. Howdy. World's second strongest telepath, Joe Pace. Good evening. And Hellfire Club Treasurer, Tom Hespos. Good evening. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. All right, so I think that we should, you know, normally want to begin at the beginning, but this beginning is a big one. So we try to shoot for an hour an episode. This one's probably going to be a double length issue, as they say in the business. Joe, what is your moment of truth? You know, this was the hardest out of, out of all the ones we've done so far to select a single moment of truth was, was almost an impossible task. And, and if you were to, to ask me if over the course of our double episode, if we're uh, able to visit more than one, then that would be fantastic. But for me, I'm like you, Bill, the, the X-Men and particularly this incarnation of the X-Men is so central to my understanding of comic books, of heroism, of humanity, that it's, it's hard to separate from my, my entire psyche. Um, you mentioned that the giant size X-Men, the rebirth of the X franchise, uh, happened in 1975, same year that I was born. I came to comic books 
now maybe 10 years later during the Secret Wars era and when the X-Men was, you know, we were seeing Rogue, we were seeing Kitty Pride, but for me, there's a piece of the earlier narrative to the X-Men that I didn't read while it actually happened. I only was able to piece together through reading the characters talk about it in its aftermath and then being compelled to go back and, and read it through acquiring back issues. And this was, you know, pre-internet. We're talking mid, mid to late 80s. And, you know, you can't just go pull it down digitally. You've got to actually go and get the books themselves. And so like, I would spend my weekends taking my $5 allowance and going to the comic store and trying to find X-Men 140, trying to find X-Men 136. And so what I want to talk about is what I think is still one of the most resonant and vital and important comic book narratives ever told, and that's the, the Phoenix Saga. And I think it's hard to talk about X-Men without talking about that. Certainly the Claremont run, the Claremont burn run is defined by the Phoenix Saga. And I think the reason that it's so important if we ask ourselves, what does heroism mean? Heroism, is, the first piece is sacrifice uh, and the willingness to sacrifice. And the entire Phoenix saga begins and ends in sacrifice. And, you know, it's funny because Jean Grey is not one of my favorite X characters. Phoenix is certainly not. I mean, you know, Wolverine, uh, Professor X, uh, Kitty Pride, and, and none of them factor into this. We all can remember when the, the original team went into space, they're fighting Sentinels in space. It's kind of a, a standard uh, adventure. And Cyclops and Jean Grey, the, the, you know, the Brangelina of the X-Men, uh, finally started to get their act together. And here we are all up in space. And the only way to get back home is for Jean to draw knowledge out of an astronaut and pilot the shuttle and use her, her shields to protect the crew, uh, the, all the X-Men who are on board from these, these cosmic rays and the, the storm that's happening. By the way, the issue that I want to talk about is 137, but this is prelude, of course. Jean and the shuttle crash. She manages to get everybody into New York Harbor safely, except for herself. Clearly, the radiation has destroyed her in the effort. And yet she rises from the waves, reborn as Phoenix. She knew she was going to die. She knew, Jean did, that she was going to save her teammates through her own death. For the record, I've never been on board with the retroactive canon that she was cocooned in this stasis while Phoenix replaced her. No, she died that day. Jean Grey died that day, was reborn cosmically powerful and yet still human. That's so important because what we see over the next couple of dozen issues is her struggle to balance her hunger with this cosmic power. That's that struggle that's so important. And the later changes, I think, cheapen that because what we see is her descent into Dark Phoenix because that's her inability to resist that seduction by that power. This is a universal parable. And X-Men and comics, to me, and fiction are at their best when they have universal themes. And so this is about corruption uh, of power. And we see that in the end, Jean, she began the story by sacrificing herself, and she ends it by sacrificing herself again. And we talk about issue 137 on the moon in the blue area when the Shi'ar have said, Phoenix must die because she has eaten stars and destroyed entire star systems and committed genocide at a celestial scale that uh, she has to die. And Jean commits suicide on the moon because she knows that she can't help herself. She's the addict that knows that she'll always be a danger to herself and her family. And we end with that iconic sequence where she destroys herself with this ancient weapon and, and Cyclops is reaching out for her and, and she's reduced to ashes. And the entire Phoenix saga to me, it's, it's brilliantly conceived, brilliantly written. And it ends with this rare comic book death that's wrenching and it's durable. This was before our comic heroes would die and come back issue after issue. This was, Jean Grey was dead. And the comic world that I entered 
she was dead. And the characters still talked about her as a loved one who was gone, not a loved one who might come back because of time right. travel or some other, you know, Scarlet Witch twiddles her little finger. This was a real thing that had happened. And, and I think for me, this was a real family that had lost a member. And comic books at that time were about those relationships as much as they were about fighting bad guys. And, and that's what I loved so much about it. So for me, my experience and my relationship with the X-Men is, is drawn fundamentally by um, the Phoenix Saga, by Gene's bookended sacrifices, and how it affected everybody else on the team for, for a very long time. So just for our audience, I feel compelled to point out, no, not that this is a big, you know, trigger warning type of show, but I think that what's interesting is that she does commit suicide. However, for those who of you who haven't actually read the comic, it's, I think it's important to note, it is a, a comic book heroic suicide from the era as opposed to a visceral, more realistic depiction of suicide, like what you'd get in, say, Craven's Last Hunt. Here, you know, she uses her telekinetic powers to activate an ancient laser cannon from the ground, lifts it up and blasts herself with a laser blast. So, I mean, it's, it's a very, it ends the story perfectly on those terms but it doesn't go so far off the off the rails in terms of you know suddenly the emotional impact on the reader goes from something we expect something we don't expect i think i think that'd be a fair assessment wouldn't you it's not a story about suicide it's a story about sacrifice yeah the suicide is not central to the storyline it's the fact that she chooses to sacrifice herself to save others as she did on the shuttle and so it's it's more a heroic act then it's not about suicide it's not a parable about that it's 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 very much just about her choosing love over uh, hunger and, and power yeah you know one of the first marvel comics i ever bought was the official handbook of the marvel universe's book of the dead and inactive uh which is like an appendix to all that and this is from the first i guess first volume so we're talking like 1980 Look at Captain Marvel and Swordsman and those guys. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, you know, and so and so I was reading through, and I remember there's a whole page on Phoenix. You could tell how much, even at that time, Marvel really honored the lore of that story that they had put out, and they really meant for it to be not just a big story, but you know, a story that mattered and seminal. a death that mattered and seminal, and a death they did not really mean to easily reverse or anything like that. It was meant to be like a Gwen Stacy moment for the X Men. Right. Like it was supposed to be she's gone and now you know this book will forever be in two buckets before the death of phoenix the death of dean gene gray and after as anybody who's experienced a death in life feels that their life has become no matter who you lose at that moment your life feels like my i had two lives before this day and after this day and they meant to pursue that with the x-men i think and i think they very much achieved that until the retconning started happening but blessedly that retconning that we talk about for those of you who haven't read it years later (laughs) they through a remarkably contrived kind of set that we're not really going to get into, they kind of brought characters back that they probably shouldn't have. And Many times. As happens in the comics. But I will say, though, there was a long period of time after Jean Grey died where that didn't happen. And so you definitely got to live in this universe where she's not coming back, and it felt like she was never going to come back, and it really was real. And I think that was a really cool thing to, to read comics in, that kind of, that kind of well, headspace. Bill, that's kind of what I'd like to say about it, I think. Joe, I came into the X-Men at the same time you did, and I think about the same time Bill did. And there was this always already quality to Jean Grey's death. It was always there. It was always present. It was always a factor. It never went away. And it lent this sense of permanence and, and reality to the X-Men universe, to Earth 616, if you will. I think that's something that comics in general have lost. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would agree. The seminal monthly titles that are meant to go on in perpetuity, they seem to have lost that for sure. But there are other titles out there, perhaps outside of Marvel and DC, that do have death permanence uh, in them. True. They make hard calls and they live by them. I am currently finishing up a read through the Extenda, you know, Mignolaverse, basically the Hellboy titles and all their associated titles. And uh, they don't retcon anything in those. I mean, that's all, that's all just, you know, continuity upon continuity, which shows it can still be done. But Marvel clearly felt that they wanted to undo things, which, which is un unfortunate. But getting back to the golden era, though, that didn't happen in the golden era of Claremont. Now, I think it's the important thing. That's one of the reasons for me why the golden era is the golden era, because the things that happened stayed having happened. One of the things that captures it for me is, and this doesn't happen long after Jean dies, actually, but when Kitty Pride joins the X-Men, she has this great little moment of internal dialogue. Which she doesn't quite understand who Jean Grey was, just that whenever she mentions her, everybody looks sad. I so felt that because I felt like Kitty Pride as I became a young X-Men fan, having missed out exactly right. on the death of yeah. Jean Grey. I couldn't easily go back to a comic book shop and even buy the back issues. For me, for a while, they were essentially lost to me. It was like lost history, you know? So I only got to learn about it through reference in in the comics themselves as new issues came out so that's something i was really treasured as a reader i really appreciated kitty's feeling of being the new kid and being amidst these people with an immense shared history that she had not yet really begun to share when you're the new person any group there's that period of time when you're not fully initiated you know you, you don't have enough of that shared history and i don't know if there's a word for it but it's a it's a tough time you know <laughs> and Kitty had that with the X-Men, but also I had that as an X-Men yes. reader because they had this great history that I wanted to be part of. I knew it was rich. I knew it was wonderful. I knew it mattered. And it wouldn't be years until I could actually go back and enjoy it. It's like joining a fraternity when like two years before there was this legendary party that everybody <laughs> talks about. And like, if you weren't part of it, right? Like, you know, yeah. and, and it was what I find fascinating too, like we talk about the impact and the difference of comic books then and, and later is when 137 was originally written, Jeannie was going to live. They were going to retain her. She, had, she was a, an original X-Men. She was a character they wanted to retain. They were going to have the Shi'ar essentially like excise the Phoenix from her and she, like, okay, reset. Here we go. Very comic book solution, right? And they actually produced issue 137. There's dialogue, there's panels, there's all of it. And then Claremont, Byrne, and Shooter, and, and the rest of the, the creative team got together and they said, this woman, whether she was drunk on power in the Phoenix entity or not, she devoured star systems. She committed genocide on this cosmic scale. There have to be consequences for that. And that if we want to have the X-Men be extended parable, such as they've always been, there have to be consequences of that. She can't walk away from that and go, oh, whoops, I was possessed. You know, I mean, like she yeah. was still part of that entity. And so there's a great book that was put out, which is the, essentially the original 137 before they rewrote it. And it was all of the original story where she lives. And then there's an interview with all of the principals afterwards where they talk about this. And they say, we felt very strongly that she couldn't get away with that, that there have to be these consequences to her actions and that there's a, a morality at play. There's things that we want to say through our work. And the fact that these, this creative team, Claremont and Byrne and the rest, felt so strongly about that, that they actually pulled a book that was ready for publication and replaced it with a new storyline. Okay, I'm trying to imagine that post-1990, post-1995, right? That like creative integrity would trump, you know, extra time put in. And I think that the ownership that team felt for the book at the time is why 
we got a product that we all feel so strongly about. And I also think it's funny that I read the original 137 before I read the one that came out. Mm -hmm. So I still get confused as to who does what when sometimes. But I love that Chris Claremont and John Byrne and Jim Shooter and, and all the rest of them cared so much about what we were consuming that they went back and made sure they got it right. So the big question I have, though, this is not a challenge to the story, but as I reread it again this week, you know, one thing I kind of I started thinking about as a writer is that, yeah, I totally get the logic that Jean had to go. She, as Dark Phoenix, she had kind of morphed into her end boss phase and had just really was just completely uncontrollable and had gone to a whole other galaxy and just you know, ate a whole star system. And she does it because she's hungry. Yeah, and made the star go supernova and wiped out 5 billion lives, right? And then she's like, whatevs, and sort of moves on, right? It doesn't even, she's so not on a human morality context anymore. Yeah. It just doesn't even matter to her. It's lust. Yeah, it's almost Galactus-like. The malevolence comes in how much she doesn't care that her feeding destroys these people. But, you know, as I read that again, I kept wondering, you know, I, I get it. She has done this thing that the scale is so massive. It cannot go unaddressed. It cannot go unpunished. It cannot be forgiven. It cannot be forgotten. It can't be hand-waved away. But I kind of wonder why they chose a star system that was so far removed from the Marvel Universe. You know, at a time when they're knitting together these titles to kind of connect with each other a little bit more, for all the damage Dark Phoenix did, she essentially did it as far away from the stage as, as humanly possible. Like it was Literally almost like, in another galaxy. If this were a stage play, the direction would be like, parentheses, Gene kills 5 billion people. Close parentheses. Right? And then it gets back to what's on stage. Like it's so... Well, but they do show it. They show the little celery people screaming. They do. They do. You know, yeah. I will say this, that Bill, you say that um, she doesn't care. Phoenix doesn't care. Gene does. Mm. And later, Gene actually admits, she says, I can't believe I did this. I, I, yeah. I, I can't stop thinking about what I did when I gave into my hunger. And it's, we talked about how it's not a story about suicide. It's a story. It is a story about addiction. I mean, mm. She's addicted to exercising her power. She's addicted to the, what's the line, Claremont? Claremont, by the way, for all his brilliance, loves to repeat himself and loves to, loves little phrases that he comes up with. Oh, he yeah. does. Her, her power was a song within her. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we get it. It's a song within her. By all I hold holy, he used that one a lot too. <laughs> if we think about addicts in our own lives who drink too much or take drugs and then do things that you wouldn't expect that that person would ever do. And then they come back, they come down off their high, they, whatever else. And they say, I can't believe I did that, but they still did it. To me, there's a lot of that in the story as well. And that, yeah, you did it. And that still needs to be addressed. We care about the person, but these things still happened that you still beat your kids while you were drunk, honey. You know, like I, these are, these are real things. And um, yeah. I love the fact that they, they cared so much about Jean Grey as a character, but they also cared about the fact that she had done things that were unforgivable and that mattered. So let me ask you this. My take on it was less that Gene achieved a new level of power and simply, you know, it was a power corrupts kind of thing. And more like she had been inhabited by some other force. It was really just simply no longer Gene, just looked like Gene. And I wasn't trying to craft an apology for the retcon. I just don't know how much the retcon has seeped into my bones and I've, I'm kind of parroting that. Um, or if this was really meant to be a Gene got a second chance and at the same time, got a massive boost of power, and she just wasn't, like most humans, simply not equipped to handle it, and as a result, crumbled. I mean, is that your take on it, uh, gentlemen? Joe didn't mention it, but it's a really important part of this story to note that Phoenix went into the Macron crystal and literally saved the entire universe from destruction in an action that cost her a lot and, and, and could have cost her her life and revealed to her 
all of the lives, all of reality, what reality is made of in a sentient universe. And it is a fantastic moment. It's a, I mean, she really is a hero. And I don't like us talking about it, about Jean Grey, purely in terms of her hunger or her addiction or sacrifice even. She, she's a hero. And her journey from that first death, Dark Phoenix, didn't feel super, <laughs> didn't feel super, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because Joe's, he's, he's nodding his, his little Xavier bobblehead to show that he agrees. To your point, Chris, I never got the feeling that Jean's journey from her first death to her reincarnation to the Dark Phoenix endgame was entirely linear. There were definitely like forward steps and backward steps and ups and downs, that sort of thing. And, and time, you thought maybe she's going to get a grip on it, maybe she's not. So when it all falls apart, and even at the very, very end, it looks like it's burned out of her, right? Like, look, the Phoenix Force is gone. It's, it's, she's not Phoenix anymore. Guys, trust us. It's okay. And then all of a sudden, at the very end, whoosh, she comes back again. Like, oh, man, no, 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 no. You know, and then like, you realize she has to face justice because there's simply no – it's almost like the writers kind of intentionally gave themselves an out and then took that out away yeah, kind of. to make sure they had to resolve it in a way that in which it had to go. And I will say, you know, Joe, what I find so fascinating about this story of how they had an original ending – and I went back and reconfigured the ending is you said, you know, well, I can't imagine it happening post 1995 or whatever. Dude, I can't imagine that happening in 1981 or whenever it happened. I mean, at that time, Marvel's publishing schedule was a freaking train wreck. I mean, they yeah. never had books out on time. <laughs> I mean, there's no, like, there's no. a reason. That's why they were able to get away with it. Yeah, but there's a reason why when you're reading, reading Marvel comics at the time, there'd be a story and all of a sudden it would just stop and there's like some weird Christmas issue or something out of nowhere. It just pops in the middle. It's like, that's their fill-in issue, y'all. Yeah, something happened yeah. and they didn't make their deadline and they took one off the shelf and plunked it in and it makes no <laughs> sense why it's there but they had a you know they who's this artist <laughs> yeah exactly i do think that to your point and to, to chris's point there is a lot of mileage between phoenix rising from jfk harbor in, in new york to the moon right i mean there's 35 issues in there and in, during which time she does save reality in the mccran crystal from Duquesne trying to become master of everything. She also has her psyche screwed around with by mastermind and you know, there's all the hellfire club stuff and, and all of that. So, I mean, there's a lot that goes in there to your earlier question about, okay, what's the difference between the retcon and what actually happened in, in my head canon, what still is real, which is that in the original storyline, Jean is possessed and does physically and truly rise. Like Jean, it is Jean. Phoenix possesses Jean. So Jean and Phoenix are together in this symbiotic relationship or parasitical relationship going forward. And it is actually Jean who dies on the moon. Okay. While Phoenix is there and Phoenix is controlling part of her and is affecting her, it is Jean. The retcon is they show this in great detail through Fantastic Four, X-Factor, but then one of the X-Men classic vignettes goes into detail around this, which was that the Phoenix Force came to Jean while she was on the shuttle, trying to pilot her teammates to safety, and she's begging. She's saying, oh God, please, please, please. The Phoenix Force shows up and says, here's the deal. I'm going to pose as you. I'm going to put you in this little cocoon. You're going to be in the harbor, and I will come out and I'll be you. So Jean's not there. Jean is secreted away at, in this little bubble in the, the bottom of the harbor while Phoenix pretends to be her for 35 issues. And the, the woman that Cyclops loses his flower to on the Mesa top isn't Jean Grey at all. It's the celestial entity pretending to be Jean Grey and Marvel Girl. And that's what gets destroyed on the moon. And so years later, when Reed Richards finds something in the harbor, that's Jean Grey. Jean Grey never 
ate the Dabari galaxy. Jean Grey, you know what I mean? Like, so she doesn't have these sins on her soul. So the retcon wipes that away and says, all that Phoenix stuff is in her. Now, later on, they get back into all the, when the craziness happens after, and I can't speak to, but that was what the retcon was trying to, trying to. So I've got a follow-up question that for that, but before, <laughs> but before I do, uh, Tom, you're going to try to say something just a moment ago. Did, did you want to get a chance in? It always seemed to me that that little trip she took, which seemed like the sole purpose of it was to, you know, go and extinguish 5 billion lives. Right. was just so far out of left field. And, you know, like, I almost just can't accept that as part of her character development. I always feel like Jean is, like, you know, a little bit the persecuted one. Because, like, to me, in my head, in my head canon, that never really happened. Because, I mean, how many frames did it take and how quickly did it happen? It seemed to happen almost out of nowhere. It was about a page and a half, I think, total. Yeah, it was not a lot of... About a page and like, a half, yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> I never got it. And, like, okay, I get this, you know, that she's losing control and all that. But it seesawed back and forth. And you kind of got the sense that you know maybe she might get control of it for it to happen just like that quickly it almost being like a cast off kind of thing that she just goes like so far off stage as you said seemed like it came yeah. out of nowhere i agree with you tom what bugged me about it is that i mean she like leaves earth after trashing the x-men forms a stargate to go to another galaxy finds that the effort makes her hungry so she's going to snack on a star system. And then she immediately returns to Earth. Never like, sat well with me. I don't know. That part of the story did bother me. It's schizophrenic. It, I'm telling you, the fact that Phoenix and Jean Grey are trying to coexist, and sometimes Jean Grey is ascendant. And again, we've all dealt with people with either mental illness or addiction where they do stuff, and you're like, why the heck are you doing that? And then they go out, and they go on a bender, and then they come home. I, I, I will say, though, because I do love the Phoenix story. I love it so, so very much, and I love how it ended, and I love how they get one last moment of heroism when the X-Men are fighting against the Shi'ar gladiators and as basically this trial by combat, and it's all going pear-shaped. They're doing the best they can, but they're just, they're so overwhelmed. I mean, the point of this battle is not for the X-Men to possibly prevail. The point is to give them a chance to express their heroism before they eventually meet the hammer of Shire Justice, right? They've got Superman on their side. Pretty much, right? Purple Mohawk Gladiator, yeah, it's basically Marvel Superman. Colossus gives him a run. <laughs> you know, but here's, here's the thing. There, and there's a great moment in all that where it's just Cyclops and Gene, right? All right, kid, you and me. And they just go out to face their enemies. And in a... <laughs> In a rare moment for comics, the camera pulls away and we don't see, we just know they get to be heroes again. They were young, they were in love. They were heroes. That's all that matters. And oh. it's just a couple panels and it's just those couple panels tell more story in my head than an entire issue of just splash pages of combat really could have. And I love that moment. So when the end comes, you know, at least we have that tonic to kind of make it all go down a little bit better. I get the feeling they were writing these issues kind of as they went along. So it's hard to plan for continuity 20, 30, 40 issues down the road because you're writing to fill, you know, June, right? But I kind of wish that maybe she had just, Dark Phoenix just flared up just because she was feeling her oats and took out an airliner or did something like that, which would then ultimately feed that great meta plot down the road, which was, can we trust mutants? They're all around us. We are their collateral damage. We have to do something about it. You know, the Phoenix thing could have actually fed mm -hmm. that. And ultimately, it didn't have to. That plot line arose on its own and was magnificent on its own. But I think, you know, like when Marvel did things like Ultimate Marvel, where they kind of rebooted everything and did like a whole <laughs> kind of a whole parallel version of all their core titles, they never really took that up. And I was kind of wish they did because it's like as much as I love the Phoenix saga, I kind of wish it had also kind of dovetailed into the whole mutant oppression. 
Yeah. Pre- yeah, I mean, oppression, yeah. Well, I mean, we're spoiled now, aren't we? Because, you know, we have the movie universe. It's like a, a symphony, you know, with, with movies coming together and people in one another's and everything well planned out. This was well before any of that, you know, ever came into being. <laughs> you know what, Tom? I think that's a very fair point. I think it's a very, very, very fair point. I have to say, it, it is unfair as an audience member to go, you know what? I wish a story had done X rather than Y because you're not the one writing the story. You don't have that spot at the table to, to make that call. So you can't judge a story for what it was in your head rather than what actually was. That, that's not a fair criticism, really. I think this is more a matter of, there are so many things I love about all this. And it's like, oh, if it could just do one more thing that I love so much. And that's just, frankly, that's, as an audience member, that's just gluttony on my part. That's just me wanting one more thing. I mean, that's everybody. And a, yeah, and a cavalcade of things I already love about this. It's like, dude, I don't need one more thing. I'm fine. It's like- We have a saying, uh, Ed Koch was uh, mayor of New York City. And he said once, he said, if you agree with me on six out of 10 things, vote for me. If you agree with me on 10 out of 10 things, see a psychiatrist. <laughs> and, and the ongoing joke is that like, the Dark Phoenix Saga, which to me is a 99 out of 100. And yeah, there's stuff I'll pluck at and threads that I'll pluck at. But for me, even as a writer, as a reader, it's so, it works on so many levels. Mm. And it has a beginning and an end. And it affects so many of the characters in so many ongoing permanent ways that um, I feel greedy. It has a real case to be called the greatest comic book story of all time. I, I would. Derek cut this out but i would <laughs> when you look at the the course of it it takes place gosh over what now 20 issues or something like that and not every issue is constantly driving towards this predestined conclusion right i mean you get to live with it for a while there's a slow burn to it yeah it's a yeah, it's a real slow burn and it's a very earned payoff and you get truly invested in it the medium of superhero comics doesn't often really allow for that, to be honest. I mean, just because of the way in which they're published, the way in which the creative teams, you know, shuffle up, you know, you often can't do that. But I will say, we should be mindful to point out that even within the Claremont golden era, there is a smaller golden era, right? Which is the Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin matchup, yes. which ran for like 30 issues or something. Probably the longest single creative team, I think, within that whole group. I think Claremont and Cockrum did more together, but... It was yeah, right after Byrne left, Cockrum came back for a little while. Maybe for gross number of issues done, he may have more than Byrne, but I think, but Byrne and Climb they've got the sustained block. Sustained. And so it has this yeah. real sense of consistent feel. This whole thing takes place within that run. And I think that really helps to further accentuate this notion of it is a story within a story. The fact that it went for so long, it never got broken up, it never looked different, it never felt different, it never took some weird jag. It was what it was and it ended when it felt like it should have ended. And that just doesn't happen in comics very often. It felt very organic. You know, it really felt like the way it should have gone. And to your point, Chris, about the greatest comic story ever written, you know, I'll give it that vote because I just don't know of other comic stories that were structured in such a way and went for so long and stuck in the landing the way that this one did. Agreed. But speaking about Claremont and Byrne, there's another moment of truth right near the end of their collaboration. And that brings us to you, Chris. Talk just a little bit about your moment of truth. I don't want to step in on any toes here, but Kitty Pride was introduced in X-Men 129 at the beginning or near the beginning of the Dark Phoenix saga. The X-Men go to Chicago and meet her parents to try to get her to come to the school. The Salem Academy, set up by the, the Hellfire Club, is also competing for her. She helps uh, save our heroes. She's a young mutant. She's 13. 
they're abducted, she follows and, and saves them. She's abandoned for another nine issues until X-Men 138, when Cyclops leaves the scene. We see her, she's arrived at Dr. Xavier's school, and nobody's home. So she sits down on the front steps. In the next issue, she is facing danger. Two issues later, X-Men 141, we have the beginning of the brief yes. but stellar Days of Futures Past storyline. And this is my moment of truth. My goodness. It's two issues. Two issues. You don't tell a narrative in two issues. This era of X-Men, as we've discussed, uh, has a number of wonderful two-issue, three-issue sets. But this was, I don't know, to me, revolutionary. And like Joe, it's something I came to well after I started reading the X-Men. Uh, I think Rachel had shown up by the time I had started reading the X-Men, or was about to. Many of you will have seen the film, which did a, a pretty good job, I thought, of at least capturing the excitement of it. But this story is bonkers. Uh, adult Kate Pride in the year 2013, in, in a world where mutants are essentially outlawed, most of them are killed on sight. If they're not, they're enslaved. In Rachel's case, she's turned into uh, a, a hunter of other mutants. Kate Pride uh, has Rachel sent her consciousness back to the era of X-Men 142, or 141 and 142, where she inhabits the body of her 13 and a half year old uh, younger self. And the X-Men have to stop the assassination of Senator Robert Kelly, because that is considered by Kitty, or by Kate and her cohorts, the catalyzing event that created this world where mutants are a, a subclass. and there's a two-track narrative that's really well handled, especially given that was done in only two issues. Old Kate back in, in young Kitty's body is trying to help prevent the assassination of uh, Senator Kelly by the, the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants led by Mystique. You know, simultaneously, we're, we're seeing the story of the X-Men who have sent her back in the future. And in, in this future, I mean, one of the early scenes we see is Kate walking past this line of tombstones, which includes everybody, most of the X-Men, the Fantastic mm -hmm. Four, some of the Avengers, and yeah. everybody's dying. This is the first time we get to see Wolverine die. <laughs> first of many. Let me just share with you the covers. These are two absolutely iconic yes. covers. Here is X-Men 141. Captured, killed, yes. I mean, look at that. This is a cover that isn't probably one of the most instantly recognizable X-Men covers of all time. It's also just a cover that has been like other comics have paid homage to this numerous, numerous times. A lot of artists, oh, yeah. I, 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 they've done their own, their own thing on this, uh, which is the been, best part is Colossus is dead. Uh, I'm sorry. Cyclops is dead. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> then look at X-Men 142. Yeah. Oh, what a great cover. Everybody dies. It, that, that, it's so kinetic and iconic. I mean, everybody dies. Storm has been impaled, y'all. In this story, at the, at the very beginning, we see Kitty Pride or Kate Pride. Oh, I always wondered how that works. Who's now with the Canadian <laughs> Resistance Army. We see... 
I love, by the way, that the Wolverine, like after the Sentinel blows him and he's laying there and his adamantium skeleton is on the floor. Like how cool that image is of his skeleton. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> oh yeah. You actually see where the quad houses yes, kind of work together. So like, cool. oh man, it's so cool. You're like, holy moly. Yeah. Kate falls into a trap door to find these rogues, you know, people that are human or mutant or whatever preying on whoever they can prey on and just look at this guy he's got muscles face paint a mohawk and feathers this came out before the road warrior this came out before escape from new york and this is a an entirely convincing post-apocalyptic new york city i think it's amazing I love it. With uh, Wolverine looking like Polly Walnuts, by the way. <laughs> Come on, look at that last panel and tell me I'm not telling the truth. No, no, you're, you're spot on, Tom. You are. I honestly believe that these comic books had an effect on a lot of stuff. This, I mean, the story itself is basically the Terminator. Somebody's being sent back from the past to affect the future. But this was three years before the Terminator. And this is, I think, a a really huge story, not just in comics, but culturally. This story had wings or legs. Kitty Pride, who, you know, we're introduced to as a little girl, we immediately see her as a badass because she has survived this world where all of these other badasses are dead. She's a computer whiz ninja. You got to remember she was never the ninja. That that version of her was not a ninja. Rachel talks about yeah. that eventually. She's the Sarah Connor of the Days yeah. of Future Past. She's the brains and the brawn and is a super, super tough. She's survived where others have not. And she's the other end of the spectrum of the kitty we just met abandoned on the doorstep, which is like such a Charlie Brown moment. I felt so bad for her. She's this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kid. Here I am. Nobody's here to greet me. Oh, you know, and it's like, oh, poor kitty, right? And then within two issues, there she is leading the resistance and taking on sentinels and like, this is it. Otherwise, all humanity is doomed. I mean, the stakes could not be higher. The resistance could not be in better hands, right? Right. With this character who, moments after she was introduced, she was reintroduced, which is, that never happens. It affected everything you thought about Kitty from there on. And an issue later, an issue after all of this, she is facing alien invaders, the Zanox, in the Westchester School on her own. And she's a badass. She's just a badass. And, And she forever will be. I love this story for that, if nothing else. It's got this ambivalent ending, though. Okay, they save Senator Kelly, but the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants get away, and they're kind of viewed as maybe the bad guys anyway because they were having a fight in the Senate chambers. And the last panel is Senator Kelly introducing the Mutant Registration Act. Yes, it's anything but triumphant. And other than maybe the death of Phoenix, I think it's probably among the most mature stories that the entire genre had produced to this point. We get the first hint of Magneto as a good guy because future Magneto is the person who stays behind and keeps the Senators at bay while Kitty- In a wheelchair, no In a wheelchair, in In a a wheelchair. wheelchair. Would you find a point on it? While Kitty (laughs) and Peter and Rachel and poor Franklin get away. (laughs) And that was lovely, wasn't it? I mean, like you you just didn't Mm. see that coming. We had already seen that moment where on his return, Magneto nearly kills Kitty, and he's like, oh, what have I done? That's later. That comes later. That comes later. That comes later. That's still six, seven issues. Is, that's in 150. I thought it was... It okay. is. Yeah. No. No, no, no. That's well, later. this is still the first hint. They, they build because they, they give you this. 
Yes, this is the first hit, yeah. and then they build and, on it. And I do have to uh, shout out to uh, Sir Patrick Stewart from the film. I thought he handled this moment brilliantly in that movie. There was a lot of good things about that movie. Not perfect, but I like it. I agree that it was one of the better X-Men celluloid representations, considering how they mucked up. I mean, how do you mess up Dark Phoenix? But whatever. They do the bulk of Days of Future Past okay, other than... They send Wolverine back instead of Kitty Pride, and that takes away some of the maturity versus youth yes, dynamic that's so key to that storyline. And they do it because he's the most charismatic and recognizable figure, and it's fun to send Wolverine to the 70s and, and let him do it. Sure. I, I, I understand why. It's an adaption. What I love about this story are the small beats that are inside of it. It's a huge narrative that contains the small beats, and that, that's so much of what I love about the Claremont X-Men is sweeping narrative human moments within it you see kitty and colossus are married and they kind of have these conversations of like i don't want to lose you uh-huh but we've already lost everybody else and this again going back to this this concept of sacrifice that like we lost our children there's this moment where and even as a young reader where colossus and, and kitty says to him i lost my babies so you know that they had children yeah. who were yeah. kill, either killed by sentinel that is such mature content the fact that like their children were massacred by the Sentinels and she is saying, I will do anything to stop this yeah. timeline. Even if our love and our children will never be, yeah. I will give all of that up. I will sacrifice everything we've ever known, our love, our children, our family, just to, to stop this from happening. Straight up. And that to me, it's it's so legit. I will put those three panels of a comic book superhero love story Absolutely. up against the entirety Absolutely. of Spider-Man and MJ. I'm sorry, yes. I just will. No, right. I agree. What I love about that moment so very much, before shipping was a thing, I was shipping Colossus and Kitty big time. I was like really pulling for these guys, you know, which will bring us to my moment or two later on the pod. From the very moment, like Kitty first shows up, she's like, whoo, who's the tall Russian boy? I, I think I like him. And they wrote that in age when the age gulf between them is not bridgeable, really. Yeah, 1913, you know. At one point, Russia's like, you know, if we were in Russia, we could have been married already. And Logan's like, then go to Russia, dummy. You know, yeah. you know, it's like, but you're not in Russia. You're in New York, okay? So stop acting weird about it. He needs to send Kitty to hang out with Ileana in limbo for six years. Yeah, right. Yeah, Can't okay. we just, like, fast forward a couple of years? And what was great about that budding romance is that it's not like Peter had a big countdown clock on Kitty. He was like, no, no, like, we recognized something there, and he was willing to wait, and this is, like, this thing that was going to be for a while. But they set it up. And then they immediately jump far in the future where you realize this is a thing. This isn't just puppy love. It's not just a thing they just threw out there. This is a real relationship that this, it happened when they first met each other and it's real and it's true. And you see- That hurts now, like just thinking of it. They lived a life together. It made it so true and it lands so flush. And uh, it made my appreciation for all of their romantic trials and tribulations afterwards. I love them all the more because I realized there is a proof point even if it's in a future that does not come to pass, that proves to us that, yes, this is a thing worth believing in. It's masterful storytelling, the way that Claremont is able to plot these conversations into such small spaces. It really is. By, by comic standards, it's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. I have a, a few more things I'd like to say. First, this is the first X-Men appearance of Mystique, so that's a big deal. She started Ms. Marvel, of all places. It's also the first appearance of Rachel Summers, who was never quite what I hoped she'd be, especially in the Secret Wars 2 era. They really were pushing her. This is the new Phoenix. She ultimately just left me going meh, which is a little yeah. sad. Meh character. <laughs> this is my moment of truth, though, 
because although I, it is, it's a oh, just an amazing story, amazingly well told. It's also the point in which the alternate future was introduced to the X-Men. And these alternate futures are what made the X-Men deconstruct itself. Gave us cable. I mean, right. And uh, Bishop and (laughs) uh, just uh, a literal story moment that changes everything in ways that were not expected. And in what I ultimately consider a bad way. That said, I mean, you know, now we've got Cable in a Deadpool movie, so that's good. But (laughs) I don't know. This is why I ultimately think I quit. I read read up into the 220s. I declined to renew my subscription. I saw a few later issues, you know, where Mr. Sinister was doing the Madeline Pryor thing and uh, just... Yeah, uh, it, it it wasn't pleasant. Anymore. You get cable, and you get everything is so gritty, and everything is so dark, and everything is so macho, and everything is so rugged. And I just like, can I please have a quiet moment of Kitty and Peter breaking up after after Secret Wars? Can I can I have and a quiet yes. moment that matters? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah. And, and look, human moments went away. The, the yes. stretch, yeah. the stretch between like X Men one twenty ish and. 180 there are so many issues that are just contemplative they're just mostly people hanging around the mansion or whatever yeah and and the relationships are everything what's so funny that this particular story is eliciting that particular comment from you chris is that these were some of the last issues that claremont and Byrne did together and it was in issue 140 just a couple issues before that was the issue where Byrne yeah. threw up his hands like i can't do this anymore i can't work with claremont anymore you know because the marvel method was you plot out a basic story the penciler wrote the panels and then the the writer put in the, the dialogue and the captions and Byrne would say he would have an arg moment every issue where he would pencil it the way he thought it was going to go and then claremont would have the final say with the writing and would kind of recontextualize something that happened and Byrne's like god that's not what i meant to have happened you know and it would get him kind of crazy in that vein Byrne would complain that you know the perfect claremont issue would be everybody sitting around outside of their costumes just talking Byrne was like can't we just have them up in canada beating up alpha flight in an airport it's like you know that's awesome but it shouldn't be you can't have a cake that's all icing. You know, you have to have some cake there. When Bird goes and makes Alpha Flight, there's a lot of people sitting around out of costume talking. So, yeah. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure, for sure. You know, but that whole thing, though, it created those human moments that you guys are talking about that I always really, really, really enjoyed, you know. I had this big aha moment. I saw, like, one of our mutual classmates from WNL, you know, Bill and Chris, a, a, Saw somebody post something to Facebook this week about, oh, you know, I hopped back into this like daytime soap opera that they hadn't watched in like 20 years. She's like, well, what's going on here? How can you think you can hop back into something after 20 years and the same characters are going to be there doing the same? (laughs) Well, wait a second. (laughs) Um, Isn't that kind of what I'm doing with the X-Men right now? It gave me this sort of aha moment. It, It ties in with my moment of truth pretty well. So I had this little soap opera experience anyway, and I I went back and like what you guys did, I wanted to go back into the issues and I wanted to pick up and see like, where had I really started collecting the X-Men in earnest? I never really felt like I tapped out. I felt like I kind of left it to its devices and said, you know, I don't need to get every issue of this thing. 
like I'd been doing. And I went back and I looked and the thing that tipped me off was in 168, I started to really recognize the book. I've done rereads and stuff like that, but 168 hit and I was like, okay, I'm intimately familiar with this. And sure enough, I went back to my collection and that was one of the, like the first ones that I bought. And you know, there are some exceptions, but I picked up pretty much every issue until 211. So post-brood, yeah. And that, if you want to talk about a point where like I tapped out, when you really, you know, start to think about what happened with all of it, and what was going on in my life at the time. Like I started picking up issues when I was a little boy. When I quote unquote tapped out, I'm a freshman in high school and like everything's really starting to change for me. I really felt like I could walk away at this point, which was the mutant massacre. That was like really my moment of truth. (laughs) And there are two separate things going on in there just really knitted together as like a moment of truth for me. We've talked about Colossus and, and Kitty Pride quite a bit in this episode. Basically, the plot of the whole thing with the Mutant Massacre is everybody finds themselves in the Morlock Tunnels because this group of uh, supervillains has shown up. They just start slaying everything in sight. And pretty soon you have like all the mutant teams are just down there through their own set of circumstances. It was a big crossover event. You know, you had the new mutants were down there. You had the X factor, you had uh, the X-Men. And when you see the X-Men head into the tunnels and and really stuff starts to go down. I mean, there are a lot of Morlock dead bodies in that one. And I got really taken aback by that. You really started to see a villainous team there that really started to look like Nazis to me the marauders down there as mutants, but had this just vendetta and were like, started killing every mutant that they saw, every Morlock that they saw. And, you know, the X-Men and X-Factor and, you know, all these teams were down there and there were just more mutants in the way. The first thing that contributed to the moment of truth for me was the X-Men are kind of getting their butts kicked. And you see, you know, Nightcrawler goes down, you see, you know, Kitty Pride starts to go down, and then you see Peter Rasputin, you see Colossus just go bonkers, like do something just so completely out of character. He's just taking shots from this character called Riptide. He whirls around really fast, and he's throwing all these spikes and stars at him, and they're embedding in his body and in his head and everything like that, and he manages to get to the guy, and he just snaps his neck. That is not Colossus. Uh, Oh my God, this guy, you know, who struggles throughout the entire comic with this notion of like, I will not kill alongside Storm. And like, they're really just trying to hold that up as a team ideal. And he just acts like more like Wolverine than anything else. He just snaps the guy's neck. I'm like, whoa, that just was an arresting moment for me. Uh, Not a negative moment necessarily. I kind of actually cheered for the guy a little bit. I know everybody else, you know, may feel that it's a little bit out of character and I I agree, but you know, I had a little cheering moment for the guy. Simultaneously, the other thing that contributed to this moment of truth, because, you know, I had to pull file at the uh, comic book store like everybody else. And, you know, I'm getting this issue of the X-Men and I'm getting the other, you know, this issue of X-Factor. And we're all reading about what's going on in the Morlock tunnels through all these different teams that are involved. And that issue ends with, you know, this guy Harpoon, who's a marauder. And, you know, this guy is one of the guys who's killed like a bunch of people in the Morlock tunnels. They managed to corner Angel, one of the original X-Men, and they pin him to the wall by his wings. 
and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, this title is 10 issues old. We just got this thing that we wanted for so long, which was the, you know, the reuniting of the original X-Men. We're 10 issues in, and already I got a guy who's he's either dead or he's never going to fly again because they've pinned him to the wall by his wings. And that was the last panel of X Factor number 10. I couldn't believe what I saw with my own eyes. It didn't make me tap out, but I said, you know what? This thing has started to get very dark on me. I don't feel like I need to pick up all these issues anymore. And sure enough, it really starts to tail off right after X-Men you know, 211 and X Factor 10. You just see like, all right, you know, skip two or three issues and then tried to come back into it. I think it came back in for like the fall of the mutants and stuff with X-Men. Then that was kind of it. That began my transition just out of the X titles and, uh, you know, into other things like girls. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the fall of the mutants because the fall of the mutants was the crossover event that wasn't really a crossover event. It was just more like simultaneous storylines and all the mutant books that all kind of came together at one thing. But that came together at the end of the period we're talking about tonight. We're on Canny, it's issue 228. But then the Australia thing doesn't really start till 230 because in 229 they had another one of those, whoops, we missed the deadline issues. They sort of plunked it down there. So really the the, the moment we're talking about goes all the way through, you know, really 229 essentially. But yeah, to your point, because I remember the Mutant Massacre very well. I remember at that point I was all in. I was like, I think I was actually subscribing maybe to every single Marvel title they made at that point. My brother and I pooled our resources. We just were getting them all. We're reading them simultaneously. And I remember the fall of the mutants that crisscrossed a little bit. It was this big deal. It was like shaking up the whole mutant scene, which was becoming a, an increasingly important part of the Marvel universe, especially the shooter era, highly interconnected Marvel universe where one title had ripple effects in another title and that sort of thing. People name drop and other titles and all that. And for me, that was the first big crossover that I remember reading and the last one I remember reading that felt like it worked because the other ones that followed either felt too disruptive. Like I was, we had a great storyline and then, Oh great. It's annual crossover time. And then things kind of came through. It just didn't feel like it worked or age of Atlantis. Yeah. Or whatever else. Yeah. Always. It became an annual thing, but that one was like, it, it just sort of emerged. Like this story got so big, it just took over the whole mutant thing. And, and yeah, I, I remember it well, Tom. You know, I've since gone back and I've read, you know, what's happened since, of course, things I think go bonkers much later, post Claremont and everything, but I wouldn't say I put a nail in the X-Men's coffin because I always love to come back and read the stories. I mean, like I go to my kid's school and I read the X-Men origin story that I have here. It's a book, you know, the Dr. King themes that, um, that, that run through the whole book and everything and, you know, treat people like they ought to be treated and the, the golden rule and all that. It's all present here. So I like to come in and give that as a lesson to, you know, all three of my kids' uh, elementary school classes. <laughs> the X-Men always were a family story, that this was the, the fracturing of the family. This is when Kitty and Nightcrawler, the next time we see them up and about, they're with Excalibur uh, over in the British Isles, wondering if the X-Men are still alive. And the nucleus is broken. Cyclops is off with X-Factor, with the, with the original team. And Colossus is, uh, you know, poor Colossus with his heart of a poet is breaking necks of bad guys. This guy who would not contemplate killing a brood parasite that was going to destroy him. Storm is not herself anymore. And I feel for me, I've always been a huge Professor X fan. And I think that we feel his absence so completely in Mutant Massacre. Here's a guy for the first 200 issues has been the absolute weather vane for this franchise and this family. 
he's the paterfamilias, he's the, uh, the, you know, the patriarch. And, you know, Magneto can't hold it together. He's trying to get the new mutants to, to do their thing. They're rudderless. Cyclops is gone. Professor X is gone. Magneto's gone. Wolverine's trying to, you know, is Shadowcat the leader? Nightcrawler goes through this whole cycle of, I'm the leader and I can't do it. I cannot do it. He actually has this moment of saying, I can't lead this team. I'm not that guy. This, this, it feels like the end because it is the end. And it has different creative moments later and it has other cycles that happen. But for those of us who came of age with Claremont Byrne and Claremont Romita uh, and Claremont Cockrum X-Men, it really is the end of what we experienced. And then the decks are cleared for something else that follows, which that's fine. And other things other people can enjoy, but this was really the, um, the conclusion of the run that we're talking about. Yeah, I very much feel that as well. To Tom's point, I didn't have a moment where I just tapped out. I was like, that's it. I threw down my books, like I'm done. I just sort of quietly walked away. And, and for me, it ended with a whimper and not with a bang. And it took me a while to go back. I had to kind of forensically deduce, like what was the last actual issue I bought? I, I can't quite remember, you know, because I had followed for so long at one point, I had to go in and, you know, stop the, the pull file at the comic store and that sort of thing. And to be honest, this also kind of coincided pretty closely with me getting ready to go to college, too. And I knew that for me going to college, and I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour away from New York City, about an hour away from Philadelphia, number of good comic book shops and with an easy driving distance where I lived. I went to school in a very nice, small, but rural town in Virginia where there were no comic book stores anywhere. I mean, I think I'd have to go an hour south to Roanoke just to begin looking for one with no guarantee of success. So I basically went on a four-year forced fast of all comics. And so I kind of knew it was coming. And so sort of gave myself reasons to walk away from things. And Mutant Massacre was kind of like, it didn't sit well with me. I was like, you know, this is probably as good a time for me to walk away as ever. And part of it was what you said, Joe, it was like, I felt a family fracturing and it was hard. I've always seen this as a family book. And that's one of the reasons why it means so much to me more than any other team book is that it is true. It is a family book. They say they love each other a lot. And they talk about how they're a family. They mean that the Avengers don't talk about how they love each other, but the X-Men do because it's different for them. It meant something different to me very much because of that reason. So to see them not all together again, see people pick up and move their lives elsewhere and all and you know that's life right that happens you know no fellowship lasts forever but when you're 15 16 17 years old it's hard to watch it in real time month after month you know it becomes a hard read so there was an increasingly bittersweet quality for me as a real-time reader of the uncanny x-men because i i hated seeing this family that i loved so much feeling like they're solely drifting apart from each other because that point i was starting to pull away. I wasn't about to start reading new titles. So I didn't really pick up on the Excalibur part. So for me, Katie and Nightcrawler, two of my favorites, just dropped off the map and I didn't know where they went. So there was a, a kind of a wrenching experience for me. But you know, the other thing is, let's get back to the point that Tom raised, which is this really powerful page where Colossus comes in on Riptide. And I, I, this is one of the things I did not have to reread this to refamiliarize. This is a page or two that's seared in my head because you mentioned Harpoon pinning poor Angel against the wall. Well, this is Harpoon throws a spear at Aurora and Kitty throws her body in the way, hoping that her phasing ability will short out the spear because Harpoon's throwing these like energy spears and it doesn't work so well. And Kitty gets really badly hurt and Colossus sees that 
and that's when he just you know he snaps like you have got uh, over uh, man right, right and the funny thing is he doesn't go after harpoon the guy who did it right he's currently duking it out with riptide this guy who's just this dude who can spin like a top and because it's the 1980s he's got endless throwing stars and, <laughs> right and just fires them off like a hurricane and where he kept them all, who knows? You know, that magical space behind his back where- There were a lot of pouches. Wait, this is before the pouch era. This is when it started. It's a fanny pack. This isn't Layfield. Well, no, we're still in the jumpsuit era. No, you had, seriously, go back is, and look at look at the Marauders. They're like strapped They with, do have a lot of stuff. The, the Marauders are, but not, not Riptide. Riptide's still aerobics pretty, jumpsuit type thing, yeah, right? Yeah, he's pretty let's get physical. Those stars are coming from that weird space behind his back where Bugs Bunny keeps like baseball bats. And Maybe whatnot. that's his mutant power. But the point is that Colossus is Duke that with him and he sees across the battlefield kitty get struck down and that's when he's like <sighs> and just suddenly he just turns a corner normally he would have done something else had he not seen that happen but instead he he just walks up to riptide riptide like <laughs> and just unloads on colossus and he's like doesn't care he just he can't stop what's coming and just comes up to him and just puts his hands on his neck and just cracks it and you see it in a silhouette hunching over this slain body looks over and you see the whites of his eyes. He's like, Harpoon, you're next. And you're like, good grief. That's horrifying to see. Make peace with your gods, little man. Yeah. <laughs> and in the moment, Tom, yeah, I was like, yes, finally, Colossus getting it done. Because Colossus, one of my very favorite X-Men, kind of a big punching bag. He was like the guy, and I've said this many times before. He's kind of a pansy. He's the He's the big, strong dude who gets his head kicked in all the time to show you how tough the other enemies really are so you take the fight yeah. seriously, right? He's the... Basically, if the X-Men had a red shirt, it would be Colossus. And he talks about it. He talks he's about it so much. always talking about being unsure of himself and did he do the right thing and blah, blah, blah. Yes you know, and like no. Yes and no. He has moments, though. I got to tell you, like he's the guy who beats Proteus. So well, okay, so we're going to talk. Well, wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to talk about Proteus. Actually, I'm, I'm actually bringing this back to Proteus. And yes, he did. But by the time we get the Mutant Massacre, though, Colossus is more no seriously though Colossus is more misses than hits for about 40 issues he's the guy not really getting it done periodically he does but he's really unsure of himself and is not he's not the and, and he never lets his strength go but when you talk about this thing with Proteus though that's a great point where he does kill Proteus this takes place in I guess ish, gosh uh, 120 something like that yeah uh, like 120 it's like early on and it is Moira Mataggart runs Muir Isle on the northernmost tip of Scotland, probably somewhere near Scarabray. It's an Orkney. Yeah, yeah. She runs this little mutant research facility that's off on the hinterlands, like on the far edge of the map. And it's kind of where all the other major mutant characters who aren't in a superhero team kind of get together and hang out. Madrox. Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, Lorna Dane, Polaris, Alex Summers, Havoc. I mean, for a while, there's like a de facto team of non-superheroes hanging out in Muir Isle doing their thing. But one of the people up there is this mutant X who gets let go and is essentially this being a pure energy that has to inhabit a human body and consume it. And then it has other powers as well. It's Moira's son, right? And she doesn't know what to do with this guy. And he gets set free by, you know, a, a, a series of events that can only happen in a comic book. But the point is that he's out and about. He's trying to get to a large population center where you can, can sort of just feed at will. And the X-Men have to stop him. And they do everything they can throw all their stuff at him and finally gets to the point where, cause mutant X is also known as Proteus. He um, has a lethal sensitivity to metal. And so when he's finally, they get, they beat up his body. He has to be in an energy form. He leaves and it finally it's up to Colossus and he has to deliver the coup de grace. 
and he puts his metal hands in him and disperses the energy field. And he felt like he touched a bunch of live wires. But but he's the one who administers the killing stroke to Proteus. And this is a plan. It's premeditated. It's not like Peter had this thought in this heat of battle. He's like, this is the plan. This is what we're going to have to do. And it was very well couched like, this is the only option. This is the only thing we're going to do. If we don't do this, real calamity is going to happen. And they handled it really well. Like Peter really thought about it afterwards, realizing, yes, it was necessary. No, this is not in line with Xavier's dream. No, it's not in line with how I would do things. Yes, I feel bad about it. No, I would not have done it differently. Like he captures all that stew of conflicting feelings that came from it. And it made it feel really earned and really, and it really worked. The Riptide murder (laughs) Which is just so like it was a murder. Like, Let, let's just get it was it was straight it was straight murder. murder. I mean, I hear the cracking of celery stalks every time I look at that panel. Right? He just you know. Celery oh, stalks is that a Dabari reference? <laughs> Claremont refers to them as celery people. So that's I, I thought celery people. No, no. For me, the thing is, is that that moment and those issues they published right on the eve of when comics themselves were getting a more violent, more gritty- Oh, Punisher, everybody should more, be Frank Castle. More extreme, Wolverine should be dropping more bodies, just all that sort of stuff, which, you know, if that's your jam, then great, go with it. But at that time, it almost felt like, you know, this story has been this endless conflict between Xavier's worldview and say like Magneto's worldview. MLK versus worldview. Malcolm X. It was almost like, the worldview of Marvel Comics had shifted from Xavier's worldview to something less than that. And and that But this is the nineties. Yeah, this is the nineties. Yeah, this yeah. is this is post grunge. Hold on. This is this is the early nineties. No, it's not. This is, yes, it is, because Mutant Massacre was ninety, wasn't it? No. Mutant Massacre was like eighty nine. Eight, like maybe 87. Well, we know the 80s only went through 86, 87. Like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Like the 60s lasted yeah, yeah. until 60. But that was 87 because I was a freshman in high school, I remember. But to your point, though, Joe, this does feel like a pivot to that time, though. I, I get what you're saying. I mean, it definitely feels like a pivot to that time. It's not of the time. This is like... Maybe it's a leader to it. Yeah. It's almost like the, it's like the ribbon cutting to that time. And I didn't like that time. I prefer the time that came before. I will say this, that if we're talking about Mutant Massacre, I remember the last X-Men issue that I enjoyed. And I stuck with it. I stuck with it through the Siege of Perilous. I went to Australia. I got to know Gateway. I did all of that stuff. I tried to understand Revanche. I did all of that. And for me, when Sabretooth comes to the mansion and he's going to kill a bunch of the injured Morlocks and, and, and other mutants who are trying to recuperate at the Grinalkin Lane. And all that's there is Wolverine and Psylocke. And Psylocke we're meeting for the first time. And she's Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain's older sister, who is in this purple and pink dress and is this very proper Downton Abbey daughter who's going to who's a telepath. Now we we've lost Professor X, gotta have a telepath because you know Jean Gray's not there, Professor X isn't there. Uh, Rachel's gone. Um, so Psylocke is working with Wolverine to try to beat. Sabretooth and she kind of goes one-on-one with Sabretooth for a while and it's pretty awesome the art's okay but the dialogue is strong and there's narrative tension throughout and I was like oh this Betsy Braddock like she's a I I think she's going to be a really cool character and I remember really enjoying she throws a weight at him and and Sabretooth even is like okay you've got spirit you're not too bad and it's it's it almost mirrors the welcome to the x-men kitty pride it's welcome to the x-men Betsy Braddock you know, not long after that, all of a sudden she's in armor and 
which was a cool costume. But then all of a sudden she's an Asian thong ninja. And I'm sort of like, what just happened? She was this interesting character. And now she's tough and gritty and strong. Like you were saying, everything had to be Batman. Chris Nolan Batman, not Michael Keaton Batman. I have my patience for that. It's so limited. I need nuance. I need interesting diversity of characters. I don't need them all to be badasses. You can only have so many heroes. They took Betsy Braddock, who could have been really interesting, and Psylocke, who could have been really interesting, and they made her like angry girl Wolverine. And my patience for that was zero. You had to have that in balance. You know, it was like Wolverine was always, you know, the killer of the team. And, you know, he made it sick with all the references to like, oh, don't, you know, cross the line because you don't know what it'll do to you. That's, you know, annoying Wolverine (laughs) that I I couldn't stand. But, you know, he developed into a great character. But there was always that balance between him and like Storm and Colossus and the rest of the team were kind of like, moral compass. No, we're upholding, you know, trying to uphold some team values here. And, And when everything tilted that way, it just threw everything off. There wasn't the tension there anymore he used to be able to count on wolverine going off in a huff and going off on his own like mission someplace because he didn't like you know hearing that uh oh you you can't kill and you know all all this other stuff i gotta go kill some guys i'll be back in a minute (laughs) wolverine's journey as a character is one of my favorites in this whole golden era of claremont because apologies to all the wolverine fans out there especially to derek our sound engineer who i know loves wolverine very very deeply not as much as daredevil there's simply no getting around the fact that when we first begin this whole x-men journey wolverine is a spazzy little freak he's a prick not just that he needs to stop drinking mountain dew i mean he's just like so amped (laughs) up all the time and so just ready to flip his lid and is popping his claws for nothing he's just like you're like, man, no wonder why Canada let you go. I don't let you go. He wasn't a free agent. There is <laughs> not a Canadian alive who could possibly match him for just sheer aggression. Like, come on now. But, you know, they figure out what to do with him, and they really get him to start working really, really well. And by the time we get to those later issues, to where we cross a lot of territory with him, he's evolved into this older, wiser character. And, yes, he does annoy us periodically with the – don't cross the line like I cross the line, you know, sort of thing. He he says it from a point of experience, but it just doesn't feel as authoritative, I guess, because uh, you know that deep down the audience really wants him to just cut up a whole bunch of Hellfire Club guards. Late stage Wolverine in this run, though, he's really fantastic because he's the guy who he's this wellspring of insight and he's not the team leader, but he's a person you can trust to go to. And he offers some really great points. And my moment of truth actually touches upon something you guys have already kind of alluded to, which is the human moments in, in the thing, the romance between Colossus, Kitty Pride, and uh, what is my very, my very favorite moment of Wolverine ever, actually. And Wolverine's not even my favorite X-Men, not even by a long shot. There are many more I like more than him, but I love the role he started to play at this point in the X-Men, and I love how Claremont wrote him. And for me, my moment of truth It is, and man, I adore this comic with my whole heart. It is issue 183. He'll never make me cry. The story is this. The X-Men have just returned from the Secret Wars. Secret Wars was a really big crossover event that happened right around 1984 or so, and is this big 12-issue limited series, kind of followed on the heels of the previous uh, contest of the champions a couple years before, Basically, it was a 12-issue series in which they gathered all the biggest superheroes from all the different titles, put them in a contrived location, 
grab a lot of the most popular villains, chuck them in there. It's just this big battle royale that happened kind of simultaneously to all these other comics happening. So what happened was at one point, we're reading all these different Marvel comics and everybody who gets involved in Marvel comics, and it was like the majority of this of the titles, their main characters are involved in the Secret Wars. At the end of an issue, all of a sudden they had this strange pull to this big alien structure that mysteriously appears in central park they can't understand why they're heading towards it they just are they walk in and all of a sudden poof they're gone and they go where they go and it says well to find out where they went start reading the secret wars which publishes like that month right for the next 12 issues well then the next issue so like right around the time of secret wars number two coming out all these other issues they just keep going right and so everybody poof they'll come back and like well that was a hell of a thing and you're like well what happened well read secret wars for the next year i'm like oh my god okay well sure and i was in like flynn i was on that like white on rice right it had some changes to larger continuity like like spider-man's black suit comes from the secret wars and benjamin Grimm, the thing leaves the fantastic four for a while and is replaced by the she-hulk on the back of that and you know one or two other things that are you know they're continuity things but they're not massive fundamental changes not like a, a gene gray dying kind of thing but in it colossus has this fling with an alien girl who dies during the Zaji. Zaji, right who basically she's a red shirt and she dies in the course of the secret war so he has this fling and she dies now what's important to note is that kitty pride does not come along with the x-men secret wars okay she's she's back home and more importantly the issue before the x-men go away Kitty's hanging out with a character named Doug Ramsey, who ultimately joins the New Mutants. The New Mutants. He's a cipher. Yeah, his codename is Cipher. But at this point, he's not yet joined the New Mutants. And he will eventually join them. And he's not a particularly powerful guy. His, his mutant ability is to understand code, understand languages. But the point is he and Kitty are hitting it off. They're the same age. They've got lots in common. They're getting along famously. Peter notices it and he's like, oh, man, what? hey, what is, what is this? And Logan's like, it's competition, man. You know, deal with it. Logan's been around the block. He knows what this is like, and Peter's is, has not. And so he's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. But then, poof, he goes off to fight in the Secret Wars, right? And has this fling with this alien character who was created so she could die in the Secret Wars. <laughs> and he comes back home, and it starts with Peter sitting on this bluff with Kitty. And he's breaking the news to her that he fell in love while he was gone. He was only gone for like a week. Like, that's the thing. The Secret Wars, the story in, in our world took a year to tell. But in comic book time, even though they were gone, you know, they, they were only gone for like a week or so. So he wasn't gone for a long period of time. But in that time, suddenly he finds this, this woman he, he has a thing with. And he thinks he's in love with her. When really in later issues, we find out it's survivor's guilt, which really is messing him up. He decides he no longer feels about Kitty the way he thinks he feels about Kitty. And he, he basically breaks up with her and he tells her. And, you know, it's just this two, it actually goes on for about four pages. And it's just this simple, it's again, it's this classic, they're not in their costume, they're just hanging out, talking. And it's this very tender, human, real conversation where he goes, look, I, I met somebody. Um, and her name was Saji, and she's gone. And he says these poetic things about her. And we're watching Kitty's heartbreak panel by panel as she's crying. And, and John Romita Jr., whether you like his art or not, captures her facial expressions so wonderfully you know she's leaning in and holding back and she's just trying to process this and she's still a 14 year old kid having her heart broken for the first time but you see all this stuff hitting her you know and i'm like a 15 year old kid or whatever reading this a 14 year old kid myself i mean i was i really felt for kitty i was like her age 
and was like, oh man, you just, you just felt her heartbreak and it was so well done. And it was such a human moment. And Peter handles it really kind of the worst way he possibly could because lest we forget two issues or three issues before all this happens, Kitty is captured by the subterranean, you know, the Morlocks, right? Before they get wiped out and massacre. But this one Morlock named Caliban snatches her and forces her to marry him. And, and ultimately she goes, okay, you know what? If it means living by my word, protecting my friends, I will. And then Caliban realizes, you know what? Actually, you don't love me. It's wrong for me to do this to you. You can go. Saving Colossus in particular. Saving Colossus in particular, yes. Colossus had been grievously injured. If we're going to go all the way back, Colossus gets grievously injured. They need the Morlocks help to, to heal him. That puts Kitty back on their radar. Uh, one of the Morlocks goes, you know what? Last time we helped you out, you said you'd marry me and you didn't. So we're not going to make you live up to that. And Kitty's like, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. Yes, I'll live by this. I'll live in your scuzzy little tunnel and be a Morlock wife and all the horrible things that that means if you guys will save Colossus. And they save Colossus. And then the Morlocks are like, you know what? Actually, you can go because it would be wrong for us to keep you. And she goes, oh, okay, cool. And she goes up. And Peter doesn't even thank her for that. And then he goes off to the Secret Wars and hooks up with this alien girl, comes home, and then promptly breaks up with Kitty. The breakup scene is hard to, to read just on its own terms. Whether or not you had a crush on Kitty at the time, plead the fifth, whether or not you thought that Colossus was doing it wrong, whatever, that scene on its own is just, for me, a great moment. But what is really awesome is what happens next. And what happens next is everybody on the team, it's, it's like in school, right? When the couple breaks up, everybody knows about it. And Kitty's like, oh, crap, everybody knows about it. Well, guess who else knows about it? Wolverine knows about it. And guess who's not up for this? Wolverine. And so Wolverine decides he's taking Petey into town and he's going to have a little chat with him to discuss why it's not cool to break people's hearts like this. Had, had, uh, had Wolverine and Kitty Pride happened yet at this point? I don't think that they did. No, no, no. I'm they did not I'm because to... she left with him on the heels of all this. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to understand because Wolverine did the whole like Yoda Wolverine where he took Kitty right. Pride. And right. That was after all this. That was after all this. Right. Okay, okay. I didn't know if he and, and Kitty had that <laughs> no, no, no. The, and, to, this, to inform the fact that he was so angry at Colossus. No, this was purely a matter of we are family members, and family members don't do family members like this. And my wife just left me at the altar, and I'm pissed. So that's... There, there was that. But I mean, to be fair, though, that didn't really... Peter tries bringing that up, and Logan just sort of like swats it away. Like, it's not even the same thing, and you know it, dude. Don't even try, <laughs> right? Logan's coming at this from a point of deep experience, and they go to a bar. They're drinking. Nightcrawler tags along in this hilarious thing. They're like, oh, man, do you have to be here? He's like, yeah, I do. So he comes along, and of course what happens is the whole plot is that Logan means to bring Peter out. They can go drinking, and then basically he's going to slap him around and beat him up and go, look, dude, this is an older brother giving a younger brother a righteous ass kicking because you deserve it. And this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. But they spot the juggernaut drinking at the same bar who's out of costume, hanging out. And Wolverine's like, oh boy, not what I expected. Maybe it's time for us to go. And tries to get him to go. And Colossus is like, wait a minute, what if I don't want to go? And spills his beer on the juggernaut and starts a bar fight with the juggernaut. At which point, <laughs> at which point, Nightcrawler's like, should we get involved? And Wolverine's like, nope, this is what I came for anyway. Let's just sit back and watch. And this massive battle royale breaks out when they destroy the bar. There's a great scene where somebody mentions how they're so glad that their insurance covers superhero battles. <laughs> and Wolverine's got a roll of cash anyway. So. And basically, the bar gets demolished. Colossus puts up a good fight, but ultimately the Juggernaut prevails and beats the heck out of him. And then, and then you know, basically... The juggernaut he, hits him with the bar. He hits him with, with the, bar. the actual yes, bar. He actually picks up the bar and goes... <laughs> it hits him with the bar yeah a literal bar fight 
Um, it's exactly the sound. <laughs> yeah. What's so great about it is that the juggernaut pulls out a supporting wall and the whole building goes, boom, just like pancakes on, on Colossus. And somehow there is Nightcrawling Wolverine just standing there in the background. Juggernaut's like, whoa, you guys are there, huh? And like, uh-huh. And, you go, and, 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 and Juggernaut goes, you want a piece of this? And Wolverine goes, nope. nope. And it's, <laughs> it's, so, it's so clear. He's like, not why we're here, dude. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Like, it's okay. Like, what I what happened is what I wanted to happen, you know? Did my job for me. Yeah. 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 This is a hard into the tired Wolverine phase. Where Wolverine is just tired. He just, he just, he has no patience. Right? I think post Mariko leaving him through Mutant Mask, he's just tired. He just has no yeah. But the next page, though, is the best because it's the juggernaut who actually pulls this fat roll of money out of the right? And he chucks it to Wolverine and goes, this is for the bar damage, you know, here you go. And he leaves, right? And that's when classes like starts coming through and, and Wolverine goes over to him and goes, hey there, hero, all the pieces still work? And it's just <laughs> yeah. like, it's such a great line. I laugh out loud because it's like, this is totally what a bro says to another bro after he got his head knocked in in a bar fight he shouldn't have gotten into in the first place, right? It's just one of these like, are you okay? I kind of don't care that you're hurt, but I want to make sure you're not dying kind of a deal. It's so big brother. It's so familial, really, you know, and, and it kind of drives home this notion of these guys are not just team members. They are a family. And I, I love that whole, that whole story, the whole comic. I really love so much, but it goes from this, the heartbreak of Kitty pride to the righteous retribution of a brother dropping on another brother. <laughs> it's just so well done. It's kind of a masterclass. And the one thing I will say is that, what I noticed about this issue is that somewhere along, I don't know, maybe around issue 140, 150 or so, Claremont really starts to step back from the real heavy caption exposition that he really, like in the early issues, he's really heavy with. If you look at the issues when he first takes over, I mean, they're wordy. And I mean, not just wordy with speech balloons. He also like doesn't have enough faith in his own dialogue that he has to like then describe what else happens in the captions. And it's just a lot. And by the time you get to 150 or so, he stops using all the captions and it's just dialogue. And this issue is just really, it's just dialogue. It doesn't get in the way of itself. And that's one of the reasons why these issues start to work so well for me is that they're written with so little fat on the bone. He's written these characters for so long. He knows how they speak. He knows their beats. He's so fluent in everything they would do. He doesn't have to stop as the narrator and then give himself additional connective tissue to make sure it actually really does work as well as he hopes it will work. He knows it will. And he can do it just with the action of the panel and just with what they say to each other. And it's a writer who's really at the peak of understanding his subject matter. And this issue works so well because of that. And I and that's one more reason why I like it so much. And he puts the button on it at the end, like after Wolverine and Colossus do the you okay, bro? And Wolverine's and Colossus is mad and he says, You know, you should have helped me. You're my teammates, you're my family. Why weren't you helping me? And you go, Oh, like, like Kitty did for you when she volunteered to live with the Morlocks to save your life. And Colossus is just kind of like, Oh, damn. Like, Wolverine's able to get his point across the fact that you betrayed this poor girl. You're angry about me not sticking up for you. Like, dude, I was going to kick your butt myself. And you, you portrayed this poor, poor girl who not only has saved your life, but you're going to expect to save your life in the future. It is a betrayal on Klaus's part. I mean, this is uh, this is a story about not dipping your pen in the company equal. Let's be fair, though. Colossus is like 19 or 20. Kitty Pride's like 14. Or he's been chilling. He's been pushing her away. She's thrown herself at him a couple of times, including when they thought that they were harboring brood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, 
uh, eggs or whatever. And she said, let's, let's get it done. And he said, no, he's been the good boy. And now he's far away and he's got a chance at something strange and he takes it. And Zaji's messing with his head. We understand that her healing powers have some of that. Like that's why the torch was into her for a little while. And And so like poor Colossus, he feels that because he made it with her that he owes her something even after she's dead. And he comes back and he's so honorable and he's so pure that he has to tell Kitty about it, which first of all, dude, just let that lie. Like that doesn't matter. That was you were you were billions of light years away. What does it matter? Daenerys Targaryen's dead. Like let it go. But <laughs> I, I've always wondered about that though, because you know the Secret Wars was it was Jim Shooter's big. It was supposed to be his swan song creatively, right? When I keep talking about this era, Claremont Golden Era, it's within when Jim Shooter is editor in chief of Marvel Comics. When I say how much I love Marvel Comics, I think what I really mean is I love Marvel. I love Jim Shooter era Marvel comics, especially. There are other Marvel things I do love very much, but the Shooter era in particular is the era I grew up in. It's the era I was a monthly subscriber to. I was buying it all. I was reading it all concurrently. I love how he finally created that shared universe. It all really worked. But he did all that in the background. A lot of the work he did was getting books to be on time, getting stories to be to make sense, <laughs> you know, getting artists to be committed. Like he did a lot of getting the trains to run on time, and and that had a big impact on the stories. But after a while, he's like, you know what? I actually want to write something that is part of this too, and that's where Secret Wars came from, right? And that was I want to sell some toys. And that was supposed to be his thing, right? And the thing is, is that this relationship Colossus had with Sanji. It happens in the Secret Wars. It's a Jim Shooter thing. I always get the feeling that that's something he did and he sort of imposed it upon the X-Men. And it, it happens at a good enough time because when you have this sort of a romance and a story, this long-term viable romance, but it can't actually happen for some reason, there's only so long you can play that out before the audience gets tired of, is this going to happen or is it not going to happen? You need something to kind of get in the way of it, right? One of the other characters finds another romantic partner or, or something that has to interrupt it. So this interrupted it at right, probably at, at the time it needed to be interrupted, to be honest, but it interrupted it in a way that felt off and felt a little non-Claremont, to be honest with you, and felt a little odd for Colossus. Like we talk about, you know, it felt odd for Colossus to kill Riptide. Frankly, it felt odd for Colossus to hook up with a golden skin alien healer chick from another planet. Like that's not who he is. He's a peasant boy from... The collective. He's just not, you know, he wasn't, his issue wasn't that he wasn't getting busy with somebody. His issue was that he didn't have the right partner. And all of a sudden, this thing happened. Just didn't feel to me like it really. It was a happy ending. Let's be clear about what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. Like this chick lays her hands on people and it has a happy ending. Like, like, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it just, it just didn't. It just means more to Colossus than it did to Johnny Storm. Like that's that to <laughs> yes. me is the interesting. Yeah. Like Johnny Storm is like cool. Here's your tip. I'll see you later. You know, like and like. Whereas for Colossus, it means. I something. guess we love each other now, don't we? It's like Colossus goes to the strip club and thinks he has a relationship with Jane. Like that's pretty much what happens. Well, you know that's believable because you know his inexperience and his age. I mean, at the bar, right. he tells the you know the bartender, "Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm almost twenty or whatever." Yeah, come on, everybody had you know, especially in that era, moral purity was the thing. Everybody had a friend at that age. Stupidly went back and told the girlfriend he cheated on her. Everybody had that. What are you doing, dude? <laughs> Not like I ever had a situation like Colossus had, but I would have been that guy. 
that was the other reason why I like that scene so much, honestly, is I felt both for Kitty and I felt both for Colossus. But Colossus tells her in excruciating detail about like the feelings that he had and I loved her in ways I didn't. Now you're right. No, he... What the heck, dude? You love the prostitute. Well, I mean, he should have went, yeah. And that's messed up. You know, I felt for Kitty. I had no feelings for Colossus. <laughs> I did. But you know what, though? He was trying to be honorable. You know what? If the point of honor is not hurt somebody, then in this case, maybe being a little less honorable would have been the way to go because you could have. He told you know, her not for her, but for him. Well, yeah, but I mean, but it, that's selfish. That's not honorable. But he thought he was being honorable. He felt bad and he wanted to tell her so he could stop feeling bad. No, perhaps. No, I mean, he was being a dumb kid. Which is why Wolverine wanted to kick his Right. Wait, 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 he says, but I'm almost 20. You know what? Sometimes <laughs> people say they're almost an age, okay? It's people who wish they were older than they are, people who wish they were younger than they are. Exactly. Yeah, they're either, they're either 12 or they're 99. Yeah, exactly. I'm almost That's 20. Shut the F up, dude. Nobody cares. You know? I'm tw- I'm, I'll yeah. take my kids. Yeah. I'm seven and three quarters. Yeah, okay. yeah right? But, but, you know, uh, yeah. when we're talking about the, the John Byrne, you know, you know, kind of the classic Claremont issue where everybody's sitting around their pajamas, you know, talking. This is that though. In this issue, nobody appears in costume. Not even the juggernaut appears in costume. Nobody is in costume the entire issue. I think people's code names are used seriously. I counted it. I think it's three times. Yeah, they're all Kurt and Logan and yeah. They're all talking to them by the first names. It's it's Kitty, Peter, Aurora, Kurt, Logan. I think even when Wolverine spots a juggernaut and goes, oh man, that's Kane Marco. It gets a sense they're not just fighting in the same space, they're living in the same space. And that's, other comics just didn't do that. And this is, this story was such a weird one-off, but it just did so much for me just in terms of like, how do you imagine this book of people who live with each other? They're all part of the same extended adopted family. You know, they all love each other as siblings. And even ultimately, you fight the same people enough times, you know what? You start building up a reputation with them as well. And that's when you start seeing they actually have a reputation with the juggernaut that goes beyond them simply rolling for initiative. You know, they actually recognize each other. And it's like, are they going to have this? Are they not? And it's like, they have this interaction, like a professional interaction. And I never saw that in a comic before. And that blew me away when I was a kid. It blew me away even now. And Juggernaut doesn't want to really tangle with Wolverine either. Like, he's just gone three rounds with and he's probably a little tired he's like do you want some of this and wolverine's like no he's like okay that's fine yeah there's a professional respect you know michael jordan and magic johnson saying like i get you (laughs) exactly well this has definitely been a double-sized issue for sure you know we all knew this was going to have to be because there's just too much to talk about there's too much love to go around before we wrap up a couple final thoughts here before we recorded this episode, Tom, Chris, Joe, and I engaged in some initial, you know, back channel talk, as Tom would say, to discuss what our various moments would be. And we also took the opportunity, like we've mentioned, to race through the Claremont years once again, uh, which gave rise to a, an unusually robust discussion of all the issues, all the moments that we liked, and a lot of the ones that we didn't like about the issues that we were rereading. And now, one of the reasons why I launched the Moments of Truth blog and this podcast is to celebrate the things we love about the tent poles of the vast geek landscape that we all inhabit. So many times we choose to identify ourselves less uh, by what we like than by what we don't like. And when you're taking a deep dive into something that matters a lot to you, it's, it's easier than ever to call out those things that distract you from the things that you love. You know, I hate how this guy drew his pencils. I hate how this plot line got retconned. I hate Cyclops. Nobody hates Cyclops. Everybody loves Cyclops. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate, right? The thing that these comics taught me, though, is that love wins. And love always wins. 
And that was the elemental conflict between the worldview of Charles Xavier and Magneto. And over the many years, we got to re-examine this, and we got to re-examine ourselves along the way. You know, Claremont always said that his aim was to write something that was more meaningful than people just running around in costume and hitting each other. With the X-Men, he most certainly achieved that. You know, he evoked avatars of good and evil, of love and hate, of fear and courage, of exclusion and tolerance, all in an epic moral fable that has both reflected the times in which we have lived and points the way to a brighter future for us all if only we had the courage to follow it. Now, it didn't always work. Um, not all of these issues are perfect. In fact, not all of them are especially good. Uh, any run this long is going to have a few misfires along the way. And we all have our own thoughts on what those misfires are. But lest we ever get too entangled in how much we didn't like what we didn't like, let's remember the thing that matters 100 times more. What part of this that we love and why we love it? Because that's what matters. That's what sticks with us long after our mom threw out our first comic collection or we took a long break from reading what we thought was kid stuff or we simply decided that superheroes got too mainstream to enjoy anymore. It's okay to walk away from the house on Gray Malkin Lane. The important thing is to remember that there is always a place for us there because as long as we make a place for each other, none of us is ever truly without family and none of us is ever truly without a home. Chris, Joe, Tom, thanks so much for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.